Representative Chris Dush term-limited himself in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, but when President Pro Tem of the Senate, Joe Scarnati, announced his surprise retirement with only a week left to get on the ballot, Chris kicked things into high gear, and he is hoping to be the next senator from the 25th Senate District. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I'm in downtown Harrisburg today with uh, State Representative Chris Dush. Uh, Chris, welcome to Brews and Views. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's, it's good to have you here. Uh, we are, uh, we're not exactly six feet a, uh, apart uh, with coronavirus happening, no. but uh, I think we're safe uh, here alone uh, in downtown Harrisburg. And uh, before we get to um, your running uh, for the Senate District 25, which is yes. uh, President Pro Tem Joe Scarnati's seat, that he announced his retirement in the middle of the petition gathering, uh, and you hustled to get on the ballot, and you'll be on that ballot uh, whenever the primary is held. Um, uh, before we get to that, uh, let's talk about uh, you, how you grew up, uh, some of your experiences, your time in the military. Uh, and uh, then how you ended up uh, deciding to run for the state Senate after term limiting yourself uh, in the state house. So uh, where did uh, little Chris Dush grow up? Well, I uh, was born in uh, Dubois, Pennsylvania. Uh, my family, my dad was uh, uh, an oil rig foreman, and we spent the first two years of my life down in West Virginia. But uh, came back up home when I was two and to Brookville, my mother's hometown, where uh, I grew up, spent the entire, my entire uh, formative years, uh, right up through and into college. I actually attended Clarion State College at the time. It was before it became the university system. Uh, spent three years there, thought about getting into broadcasting. That's where I was in a communications major. Mm. Uh, found out that uh, during my internship at WMKX in Brookville that that was not where I was going to be uh, spending my career. Uh, but I had a wonderful life. I had great-grandparents. I had three great-grandparents that I knew who were born in the 1800s. Uh, my dad's parents, my dad was one of three, uh, or the third youngest of ten. Uh, his parents were both born in the 1800s. And uh, so I've always had a, that's affected my view of history. My great-grandparents, my grandparents, some of them knew people who actually fought in the Civil War. Mm. Uh I'm uh, the great, 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 whatever grandchild of both Civil War and a Revolutionary War veteran on my mother's side. Uh, that led my love of the military, which uh, when I decided I wasn't going to be uh, uh, a disc jockey, I uh, <laughs> headed into the Air Force. I had been working as a uh, student officer at the uh, campus police while I was attending Clarion. Uh, I was swimming at the time, too, for Clarion State. But I uh, got into law enforcement with the Air Force and spent eight years doing that. I was very blessed. I uh, got to uh, go down to Dover Air Force Base where I met my wife. And uh, she said she knew on the first date, I knew on the second. I wasn't going <laughs> to let her get away. We met in, on February 6th. I proposed March 27th. And three days later, I got an assignment to England where her mother is from. Uh, we ended up living about 400 yards from where she grew up for the first wow. 11 years of her life. 
had two sons over there. They were both uh, fully grown, happily married uh, to good Christian women. Uh, my oldest is uh, a pararescueman in the Air Force in the New York Air National Guard. Uh, and my youngest is uh, works for Schwann's out in Butler and great family. So while I was in uh, the Air Force over at uh, Milton Hall, England, I became uh, a hostage negotiation team chief. I had the opportunity to test, uh, testify in Her Majesty's Crown Court, which with all the powdered wigs and everything, that was very interesting. Did you have to wear a wig? Uh, no, 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 no. Oh. Officers of the court get to do that, but... Uh, <laughs> Because uh, uh, if there are pictures, officer. those would be very harmful in a, in a, uh, <laughs> a political campaign. Oh yes. my! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so your, um, you know, uh, your time in the military, uh, and even uh, your time uh, growing up in really rural uh, Pennsylvania, correct? I yes. mean, uh, some of these places that you're talking about, Du Bois and Brookville. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have no context as to where that we're, we're talking kind of the the the, the western third uh, of Pennsylvania, correct? Well, uh, it's actually the north the central north third. Central? Uh, yeah. I'm See, right here, on that I'm corner. Not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there on that corner in Jefferson County, but I actually worked up in uh, Elk and McKean County. I was a park ranger uh, my last summer uh, before going into the Air Force. I uh, worked at Elk, Bendigo, and Kinzu Bridge State Parks as a ranger up there, and that was before uh, that tornado came through and knocked the bridge down. Uh, but it's beautiful country up there. It's called the Pen- the area is called the Pennsylvania Wilds, and mm-hmm. uh, it is called that for a reason. It is truly God's country, and more deer than people, right? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> in some areas. So, so uh, where did politics kind of enter your interest in politics? I mean, were, was your family involved politically, uh, and how did you eventually say, "I am a Republican," and and that's where your your values, your political uh, policy ideas align? Well, I was raised in, uh, at the time, it was a divided family. My father was a a lifelong Democrat up until Jimmy Carter. And (laughs) uh, then my mother was a Republican, and her parents both were. And it was interesting. My grandmother was a committee woman for Warsaw Township. Um, And I know she'd been at the state convention. She had one of the pins that has been given to me, Mm. which is kind of a, uh, a treasure. And uh, I actually was sworn in on my grandmother's Bible. Mm. So mm. Uh, the interest, as I was working both in the state and the federal government, at one point I was working for the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, uh, about 16 years. I had seen uh, the corruption, the fraud, waste, and abuse, and I also knew that uh, whenever the Pennsylvania House decides to call somebody down for a hearing. Uh, the employees are very hesitant. Mm. Uh, the boss is standing over them saying, look, you know that's voluntary, right? You don't have to go there. The implication is clear to anybody who's a state employee that uh, that being the case, even with the whistleblower law, they can find ways to get you Yeah, out. sure, sure. Uh, and literally the first piece of legislation I did was a tr- uh, trying to get a rules change to the uh, state house to give subpoena power to every standing committee chairperson. Uh, the reason is Act 19 of 1842, uh, it hasn't been used since the Woodrow Wilson's uh, time, but uh, if the legislature calls somebody by subpoena, 
before the House or the Senate and somebody fails to show or shows and does not testify, they get sent down to the Dauphin County Jail. Now we call them back again a short time later and if they refuse again, they're stuck down there until the next, next legislative session. They could be huh. there up to close to two years. Uh, this way, if we're calling down both what are hostile subpoenas and friendly subpoenas, we have the people that we know want to tell us the truth and then there are the people who don't want to. Uh, if you call everybody down, then nobody knows who the whistleblower is. Mm -hmm. You can provide protection for those people and then they turn around and look at their boss and say, look, if I don't go, I go to jail. If I go down there and I lie, I go to jail. I'm not going to jail for you. You gotta figure out what you're gonna do. Mm -hmm. So that was my very first piece of legislation. We didn't get it through in the first two sessions. It was interesting. After Seth Grove and I found uh, the $34 billion my very first year in unauthorized spending during the impasse by Governor Wolf, we published that. It broke the, the budget impasse. Uh, I had about four or five co-sponsors on that piece of legislation. Uh, two years later, at the 2017 budget impasse, uh, when we found the 100-plus special hidden funds, $12 billion that the legislature yep. wasn't aware of, all of a sudden I had every uh, majority uh, chairman on except for three. Mm. Well, this time around, uh, I was approached, they, they wanted to do, instead of giving it to every standing committee chairman, uh, how about we create an oversight committee and that has the subpoena power. And Which was a new what? creation. This it was like, a yeah. brand new yeah. creation. We yeah. changed the rules to the House, and now uh, with Seth, who was with me on that uh, first undercover, or, I mean that uh, investigation, <laughs> uh, he is now the chairman. With me term limiting myself, I initially had myself uh, in the running for the chairman of that, and then I thought, we need consistency. I took myself out and said, not uh, chairman. So we, we've jumped ahead to where you're already working in the legislature. Absolutely. But, uh, but so your time in the Air Force uh, with the Department of Corrections, I know you had a lot of law enforcement, uh, security uh, yes. aspects. Um, and then you, you joined the Air National Guard. Yes. Uh, and uh, were part of uh, the 193rd Special Operations Wing and were deployed uh, with Operation Iraqi Freedom, correct? Yes. That's true. So, so talk about that that time. Uh, any experiences there? That oh my uh, word, yes. Uh, you know, people in this country have no idea of the evil that is in this world. Uh, I have been in the home of a former Bath Party official. Uh, that you walk into this huge room and it looks like it's a, a circle and it looks like it's got a kidney-shaped swimming pool in it. And there are these basically four-by-four four stanchions with ropes and stuff. You think it's a swimming pool, but you walk up there, and there's actually a little stream going through with uh, dirt and stuff on either side. It was actually an alligator pit. And wow. with that bath party official, if you were invited over for the, – the banquet table was along one side. You did not want to have your back to the, t to the pit because uh, you didn't know when you were invited over for dinner and entertainment if, it, if you were invited over for it or to be it. Um, <laughs> to eat or be eaten, huh? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, the, if you take a look at the satellite images of uh, the Baghdad International Airport, on the southeast corner of that, there's this, uh, on the eastern side, there's this, looks like an oversized grain silo. It's a cylinder building. It's called the Perfume Palace. When Uday and Kusei Hussein, Saddam's sons, or other Ba'ath Party officials would pick up young children, male and female, off the street, they would take them there, and it was basically the place where they kept their harem. Uh, in their version of Islam, 
Allah could not see sin on the water. There are these, if you look just to the west of that, uh, in the middle of those lakes, there's these little uh, uh, marble buildings where uh, these children would be taken out and molested, and it was... Just horrible, yeah. When you see, and literally on, on the south side of that lake, there's this place that's called the Flintstone Village. Their kids were actually playing in that little village. It was set up to look like the Flintstones era while they were off there sodomizing these kids. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, just horrible things. Uh, so you were part of uh, that uh, effort to, to free uh, the Iraqi people uh, of that uh, dictator, Saddam yes. Hussein. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, your, your time there certainly uh, emboldened you uh, to fight the good fight for freedom here in America, uh, yes. seeing what happens when you lose your freedom, right? Uh, when in the these, rule of law yeah. goes away, uh, terror reigns. Mm-hmm. And that's something that really concerns me with, uh, you know, the way we are beating up our law enforcement when mm-hmm. we're uh, beating up the people who are trying to do things right at the working end. You know, we've got a lot of people at the upper ends of echelons of government uh, especially uh, prior to the Trump administration and some holdovers that scare the living daylights out of me. Mm. I, I'll give you another th- example from Iraq. Uh, an Iraqi colonel that I was sitting and talking with, he had, uh, we were having a discussion right about the time of the election in 2008, 2009. People were coming back from Iran, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and they were telling him that the people in those countries wanted what the U.S. military was trying to provide for the uh, people of Iraq. And I said, don't you mean our government? And he said, no. He said, the, uh, your uh, military are people of the book, meaning people of the Bible. Mm-hmm. He said, you follow your general order one, there's no booze, there's no women in the tents, that kind of thing. Uh, your civilian masters are godless. And he was talking about drunken orgies and other stuff that was going on in the uh, uh, State Department compounds that were just appalling. Mm-hmm. And I can understand, I mean, he's, he was a devout Muslim, mm-hmm. and uh, these what were called third country, na- or yeah, TCN's third country nationals were in there cleaning this mess mm-hmm. up that these guys were doing. Uh, you contrast what our people are at the working end, like our military was trying to pr- provide from the ground up, you know, water, sanitation. We ring our National Guard troops that were doing that on the civilian side and teaching the Iraqis how to uh, build an infrastructure from the ground up, yeah. while our State Department people that were having those drunken orgies were also, they were bringing in people that Saddam had sent from Tikrit uh, and other Ba'ath Party officials were sending to uh, Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Oxford, and it was the old school ties. They were trying to run it from the top down. And uh, literally one example of the socialist mindset is that the air traffic controllers were getting paid the same wages as the janitors. Hmm. Hmm. The people in charge of protecting hundreds yeah. of lives. <laughs> well, so you, you, you spent that time uh, in, in the Air National Guard, uh, but at some point you say, I want to run for the state house. 
um, but you happen to reside uh, in the district uh, that uh, was held by the Speaker of the House, yes. uh, a not insignificant figure and somebody that would be very difficult to uh, displace uh, if you decide to primary him or, I guess, wait out till he retires. But I know in 2012, you decided to take on the Speaker of the House, Sam Smith. How did you come to that decision? Well, we were heading in the wrong direction. Uh, the pension system was the, the biggest motivator for me. Mm -hmm. uh, as a state employee, uh, in 2001 with Act 19, my dad had already retired, and I came home with a, some information from AFSCME, my own union, uh, encouraging me to get our legislators on board with uh, what became Act 19, which mm -hmm. was a 25% increase in pensions for state employees, 50% for the legislators and the judges and all that. Uh, at the time, we were 130% funded and the teachers were 120% funded. My dad had always boasted that uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin were the only two states in the nation with fully funded pensions. And of course, this was all prior to 9-11 because this act passed in May of 2001. Uh, yes. So the times were good, uh, Absolutely, right? yeah. the money was flush. Uh, and But my father saw it for what it was. He said, if that passes, the COLA is dead. Wow. And those mm -hmm. cost of living allowances are something that uh, retirees had been expecting because the performance actually was, yeah, we sure. were getting good returns back right. then. It wasn't mismanaged the way it is now. Um, but literally, those people who uh, were looking at retiring four, six, eight years down the road were all of a sudden seeing a 25% increase in payouts uh, after that 90 to 180 days, depending on the bargaining unit, uh, they could be collecting what they were looking to collect four, six, eight years down the road. I said, why wait? Yeah. And we went before even the stock market crash, before 9-11, we were under 100% because all those people, 100% funded, because all those people went out the door. Yeah. Yeah, so and it drained then, down the surpluses or the, the yeah. overfunding at that time. And then 9-11 yeah. hits and the stock market crashed, yeah. and we were we oh, went yeah. onto a free fall. Uh, so this, but, this, this uh, uh, got your attention and said, hey, we've got a real uh, crisis. Uh, you had Republicans doing this, right? Yes. I mean, th this was Republicans. No, Governor Ridge uh, yeah. was fully on board That's with right. this. That's right. Look, I, I have been— for good, open, transparent government from the time I was in. I've run into get to the uh, frustration of dealing with uh, corruption within the Air Force. I've taken a two-star general to the SAC IG. Uh, I've uh, busted a Fulberg colonel for using government aircraft to bring antiques back to the states. <laughs> um, and people had tried that one, uh, tried getting him before, and there was a cover-up. And the... Uh, those guys ended up paying a price. I ultimately paid a price. I was taken off of the customs duties and put into uh, put onto a desk job for a while. But you know what? Uh, you got to be willing to stand and fight, or you got to sit back and take the consequences. And the consequences for our children and grandchildren are that every one of them is going to be on the hook for uh, these pension liabilities. And I can't. I couldn't, in good conscience, with. Uh, I saw nothing coming out of my predecessor uh, on this, and uh, I mean, he signed on for that 50% increase right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, 
So you so you decide to jump in the in the 2012 uh, race. Yes. Uh, and so it's a primary because uh, whoever wins the primary, because it's an overwhelming Republican uh, House district, that's pretty much who's going to become the next uh, state representative. Yes. Uh, fell a bit short in 2012. It was interesting. He and his father had held the seat for 50 years at that time, and uh, for the first time ever, uh, somebody else won Jefferson County. And that was that happened to be me. But uh, there were three people in the race. Uh, Jim Brown did a good job of getting about ten percent of them, but he was pretty much uh, taken on the speaker. My my campaign was totally focused on the issues, mm -hmm. and I think that's what got me the forty four percent or so that I got. Uh, the speaker got forty five, and uh, it was Indiana and Armstrong counties at the time that basically kicked my butt, and it was. I, I mean, it was understandable. I, I wasn't known down there, uh, not well known at the time, even in Jefferson County. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, those rural districts, it's a, it was an early primary like now, and the winter was very harsh, and uh, people were not going to open up the door to somebody my size <laughs> at four o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's already going down up there in uh, that northern territory. So out in those rural areas, I I, I faced a uh, pretty significant challenge going door to door. I, I still hit them all, still was out there uh, knocking away, but... Uh, and it didn't discourage you because you decided, I'm running again in 2014. And uh, what happened in 2014 that uh, turned the tide that you ended up winning? Well, you know, when, when we've always said, if we win, praise God, if we lose, praise God. We were up by 500 points or 500 uh, votes uh, during that 2012 primary. And uh, it was pretty discouraging to a lot of folks whenever we ultimately lost. But I said, hold on. We said if we win, praise God. If we lose, praise God. We stood, held hands, and sang praises to God, sang hymns. And when we left, we were all feeling much lighter at heart. Two years later, uh, I'd taken, I was working at uh, the Pennsylvania Air Guard. I had taken on a GS-12 position as the Chief of Information Protection for the uh, protecting the classified information uh, programs for the Air Guard. And uh, I'd been following what the, the speaker was doing. I saw that he transferred a lot of money from uh, his uh, leadership pack into his campaign uh, account. And shortly thereafter, I'd heard that there was a poll that was done. And a whole list of things that the speaker had done, good positive uh, things that even I agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, what do you think about his, uh, the speaker's performance? What do you think about him? Would you vote for him? And then the last question was, would you vote for Chris Dush? Well, uh, he had never run, except for the 2005 pay raise debacle, uh, he'd never run an ad more than five weeks prior to the uh, primaries. Um, we were five months out, and he wasn't just running uh, or doing flyers. He was doing radio and television mm. ads. Mm. Uh, at that point, all those totaled the up. The poll results said, uh, clearly said something that concerned him, yes. Yes. <laughs> at that point, I was, all right, I'm in, full bore. And uh, a couple days after I announced... Uh, he announced that he was not going to run. Uh, there was a county commissioner who got involved, uh, and uh, the speaker threw over $78,000 his way to, with a whole series of negative ads. And again, I stayed focused on the positive, uh, focused on the issues and where, uh, uh, where I wanted us to go as a commonwealth, and uh, ultimately the people decided that that's what they wanted.
And uh, here you are. You came to Harrisburg. Uh, you uh, early on said you're only going to serve three terms, correct? You, you, That's correct. You said uh, made that pledge that you were not going to be a career politician. Uh, and so here you are uh, in the last year of your third term, which yes. uh, and um, you had decided you're not running for the House, uh, but you'd consider running for the Auditor General uh, position uh, only because uh, I know that you had a conversation with the President Pro Tem. Seems that you've had the Speaker and the President Pro Tem. You live in those districts uh, and you'd considered running for the Senate. Uh, but Joe Scarnati had told you that, uh, no, he was running again and that you uh, uh, committed to not uh, primarying him in that race, correct? That's correct. I'd actually run into him at the, uh, the homemade restaurant down in uh, Home, Pennsylvania, back in October, I believe it was, and I asked him if he was going to be running, and he said he'll let me know. Uh, I asked when, and he said, well, sometime in December. So in December, I approached him again, and uh, he said that he was running. So I figured, all right, I've got plans to make as a civilian. And uh, it was shortly after that that uh, Frank Ryan, he's another representative I serve with. Uh, said, he is my yeah. representative. Ah, great guy. <laughs> he, uh, he told me because of the work that I'd done with the Common Sense Caucus uh, that I should take a look at the Auditor General race. Mm -hmm. And at first I had said no. And then I, the more I looked at it and the investigative stuff that uh, I'd been doing and the, the team that I'd been working with, I thought, you know what, this might be a good fit. So, uh, and I do want to serve. I still want to be useful to the people. And so I threw my hat in that ring. And then uh, it was a few weeks later, I started hearing rumblings both down here and up home that uh, actually uh, the pro tem had somebody that he had wanted to, uh, in the race and uh, was working to get petitions done, and uh, he was going to throw So apparently a change of mind uh, on the part of the president pro tem to uh, not run, but uh, hadn't announced anything in the middle of the three-week uh, gathering of signatures to oh, get no. on the ballot, right? No. Uh, I, uh, I asked him again. I did get a hold of him again, and he said, well, there's about a 5% chance that I won't be running. So with him now waffling, I started thinking, all right, there's – pretty high likely, probably a lot more than 5% that he's not running. So uh, I started getting uh, my old team together, and uh, we started preparing for it. I did get some uh, a couple petitions started. But then I heard that there was going to be an official announcement that uh, up at uh, St. Mary's at the Republican Party that uh, this gentleman was going to be uh, introduced and announced as his successor. And went up, surprised him uh, that I was there and that I knew about it. Uh, and they went through with it, and that's exactly what happened. And I left the meeting and put it out there. I said, folks. With a week to go, uh, the, your deadline oh, yeah. of, of having to gather uh, 600 uh, signatures, 500, 500 signatures. signatures. Yeah. And uh, with a week to go, which normally would have been a three-week uh, period. Yes. Um, so you really had to hustle. How did you end up, uh, how many signatures did you turn in? Uh, the day that uh, they were due? Well, uh, it was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, I say the people that uh, I've been fighting for stood up and fought mm. for me mm. because I had, turns out there were over 2,500 signatures. <laughs> uh, but then I still had more coming in even after the deadline. People wow. were, had, they just couldn't get them to me in time. And that, it was a big rush to try and get 
uh, all of that down here. So there was a little bit of confusion and stuff there, but uh, uh, I was I was I was floored. I literally I had one guy that was uh, a welder uh, retired. He'd never done anything like this before, uh, going around knocking on doors trying to get signatures, huh. and. The things that he was telling me about what people were saying, I just I ended up having to pull over the side of the road because I just couldn't drive. <laughs> well, uh, it's a, it's been amazing. Uh, you've been a great vote for uh, freedom for free enterprise uh, as a House member, and it is a big part of why Commonwealth Partners, while we surveyed all of the candidates, uh, uh, endorsed you for this race. Uh, we're hopeful that uh, you will. Uh, yes, we hope that you will be victorious uh, in the primary. Uh, and then uh, becoming to uh, the state Senate, kind of moving to the other side of the building. Uh, and uh, I think yes. that that's always a, a good opportunity where um, relationships uh, between the houses, uh, we, you, know, you know the conventional wisdom that Democrats and Republicans don't like each other, but the House and Senate hate one another, <laughs> uh, even of the same party, right? Uh, sometimes it seems that the communications uh, is strained uh, even within the party, and hopefully you can be part of that bridging of the House and the Senate and working together uh, for the people of Pennsylvania. So we're hopeful that uh, you will be victorious uh, in this uh, Senate primary. Well, thank you. And I will say this. Uh, there are a couple senators over there, Kristen Phillips-Hill and uh, Scott Hutchinson, who routinely uh, come back and very collegially have comments and uh, conversations with uh, the House members. And uh, Hutch is part of the con or the uh, Roxy's Caucus. We meet on Wednesdays. He he's a regular there. Uh, Roxy's Diner for yes. those. Yes, yes. Uh, it's sometimes the Raucous Caucus. But, <laughs> uh, we're uh, I do want to be part of that bridge. I mean, the Senate does have uh, different job responsibilities and uh, I'm very much aware of them and uh, uh, but uh, by the same token uh, we serve the same constituents by mm -hmm. and large so but a much bigger footprint so you got many many more miles to cover <laughs> to drive uh, difficult to knock on doors uh, but I do wish you well and I thank you Chris for uh, coming on Brews and Views. Matt, thank you so much I truly appreciate it and uh, you guys keep up the fight because what you are doing is making an impact for the people of Pennsylvania. Well, thank you very much. Take care. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.